the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Hello and welcome to the Planning Exchange podcast. I'm Jess Noonan and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Jewell. Hi, Pete. Hi, Jess. Great to hear your voice again. (laughs) Now, you may be aware of it, but land surveys and mapping are an integral part of the town or city that you live in. Land surveying has been used for centuries in a host of important construction, engineering and mapping projects. We all need accurate base maps or land details, whatever and for for whatever it is that we rely upon, um, land surveyors. It's one of the quiet professions in the development industry. To help us dive into these issues, we have Russell Dixon, a licensed land surveyor in Victoria. Russell, many topics to talk about today and we will ask you about Gunter's chain later on. But first, we're just wondering if you could provide a brief um, background of your experience and how you came to be a land surveyor. Um, so I did an applied science degree at RMIT in 79 um, to 81, which was only a three year degree at that time. Um, graduated in the three years, which was a rare occurrence. And then um, started work for a small private practice in Ashburton in Melbourne under a, a fantastic master surveyor mate named Max Braid, who was a, an honorary fellow of the Institute. And I was lucky enough to do my license under him for about seven years. Um, and then towards the end of that process, I decided to start my own practice in Caulfield with a couple of friends that I'd been to uni with and um, started the practice in Caulfield in 1987. And then a one, similar one in Ballarat when I wanted to get out of the city at that time in uh, 1996. So I've been working for myself um, and then sold the practice and worked for them as a consultant and have for the last 10 years. So yeah, that's my background. Russ, how does land surveying fit in with land development and, and the city development world? Uh, practically every development job has a land surveying component. It, it, it gives confidence to accuracy. Any comments? Well, surveyors are really providers of information. So um, all architects, town planners and engineers require information for them to proceed with their projects. So surveyors provide confidence in the position of the titles, easements, services, adjoining properties, heights, um, levels, features, anything that those um, uh, you know, other authorities, uh, councils, or even them, um, you know, their client requires for them to continue on their process to develop their site in whatever form. So that may involve subdivision or position relative to boundaries or license surveyors in most cases um, can provide the title information, but there are other surveyors that aren't licensed, if you like, that can provide that same level of information um, and their clients can use that with confidence, Pete. And and what makes a good land surveyor, Russ? A good land surveyor, um, he would be a good communicator for a start, um, essential. He'd, um, He'd be a problem solver because that's really the, that's what surveyors are. They solve the problems of where things are. He'd be a lateral thinker. Most good surveyors are lateral thinkers. Um, he'd be meticulous because I'm afraid you have to be when you're licensed because, you know, what you provide is a legal document in most cases and that document, you know, it's 
um, can go to court if you like, if it's incorrect or whatever else. So, and you really, a good surveyor has good staff around him, you know, um, both in the field or in the office. So that's what uh, makes most cases a good surveyor. Russ, it's, it's mostly a male dominated profession. That That's right, isn't it? It has been, Pete. Yes. It's, um, uh, it's, Fairly rare to have um, female licensed surveyors in the in the profession. Um, an awful lot of the staff within the survey offices are females that um, uh, probably haven't done the course, but you know through experience or through their skill set have been able to sort of integrate into the into the um, various businesses. So yeah, it's one of the things that we have. Uh, as you said, we were a quiet industry, and and we just haven't been able to. Um, attract, if you like, um, more females because I'm not sure if they're aware of what we do in most cases. So, And can you describe what's a typical day in the field? Okay, so a typical day, you would go to the office. Um, part of your information is to make sure you've got a good job brief, if you like, from the client. So you'd gather all information that the architect or client or engineer or whatever authority you're working for would ask for, um, for and you would um, gather the information that's necessary to complete the job. So that includes searching titles, titles information, um, field notes, which we could discuss a bit later, um, benchmark information provided by service authorities, and um, head out into the head out into the field with your um, young assistant. In most cases, um, even though those days are changing with one man um, instrumentation, but um, go out and do the all the field work necessary. In whatever weather, and uh, do gather all that information, in including you know written information, uh, digital information, photos, and whatever else, and then take that back to the office. Um, uh, then you would probably compute everything that you need to to make sure that it's correct, and you can provide that information for the um, the people on AutoCAD or the other staff members, if you like, to be able to, you know. Um, use that information to prepare whatever documentation. So that's pretty much a normal day. But yeah. Russ, can I ask um, perhaps a silly question? And I've always wondered this: the um, the machinery or the the apparatus, I guess I should call it, that a lot of surveyors use when you see them um, out on the street or out on the vacant property or whatever it might be. What what is that called? And and does is that the apparatus that I guess um, translates the information back into a format that can be uh, downloaded and utilised in the eventual plan? Um, yes, Jess. So you would see tripods, which is pretty much a standard um, instrument set of legs that surveys use. And on that, you'd either have a level, which is used just for taking level information, you know, relative heights. Um, or you would see a theodolite, it's called, um, which was the old days, or a jigger, we used to call it when back in the, you know, um, was referred to. Um, these days, it could possibly be a total station instrument, which is an electronic theodolite, if you like, which uses laser technology to measure. Um, they're also capable of recording digitally um, all the information that can be used, you know, to create a 3D model. Or these days, you'll not, not uncommon to see a laser scanner set on a set of legs, which looks like a box or a, you know, an iPhone sitting on the top of a set of legs which can scan anywhere from 300,000 to 2 million points per second to gather information. So that's pretty common. And 90% of the public think that it's a camera um, and you work for Channel 7. So you've just got to work through those processes. 
I was about to say, that's what I always thought they were. <laughs> <laughs> you need special jackets, Russ. Uh, you know, you need something, you need to call you something other than land surveyors, I think. You need to find some, you need to sex up the, the profession. <laughs> we do, yes, Pete, we do. We are fairly daggy dresses. That's one of our negatives, if you like. We all, we all look pretty plain in our, in our outfits. That's fair enough. And so, Russ, just going through those different instruments that you use, um, I'm assuming that one of those allows you to help survey in um, more dense urban situations. So to allow you to pick up details, um, in, you know, internally or through, through walls or through vegetation and that sort of thing. How, how do you normally go about that? Well, Jess, we've sort of got to the point now that we use um, GPS technology, if you like, like the accuracy has now been refined and the software has been refined to a point where you can take a GPS unit, which is really a, a satellite receiver, if you like, um, with an inbuilt you know, um, software that you can just walk around with a stick with it looks like it's just got a dinner plate on the top of it. And it can gather information uh, in any, um, anywhere um, either side of a wall, for example, or it's within centimetre accuracy. So um, a lot of Difficult sites are done by um, either using GPS or trigonometry, where you take measurements from different points and then use, you know, uh, trigonometry to help work it out mathematically where where things sit. So you don't physically have to be at that particular point. So there's there's ways around it. Yes. Trig trigonometry brings back bad memories from high school. So <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid most surveyors' trigonometry is the key to their job. Jess, yes, love well, it all. There's a reason I'm a surveyor. <laughs> Oh, and just talking on that, Russ, I remember many years ago when I was at school, just as, you know, handheld computers were coming out, that we used to have like trigonometry books. I don't know if you remember those, the green books with all the cos and the tan and the sign tables. And you, Jess, you had to look at the tables to get information. Do you remember those times, Russ? I was lucky enough in 1979 when I started that we could use the Hewlett-Packard 11C or 15C calculators that had it inbuilt. I do remember those tables and I do remember our original programming when I was at uni used to use Fortran, which was you'd queue up at RMIT for about five hours and then punch a whole heap of cards and put them into a machine and hope the hell that they would punch out a bit of a program at the other end. Um, and if it didn't, then you have to go back to the end of the queue and start the whole process again. So we have come a long way since those days. Yeah, I, I do remember the computer room as well. Jess, these are the these are things you missed out on, Jess. Definitely, I, I, I'm I'm very sad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and what about Russ? Um, you know, with the technology, the equipment revolution, you, we've touched on it, but can you just talk us through? sort of maybe a couple of key transitions or key breakthroughs that you've experienced? Um, or, or, or Russ, it might also be useful to kind of talk through even more historically how, how, how surveying has changed from the very early days and then, and then perhaps how you've seen it change within your career. Yeah, well, originally the, and originally the surveyors who were, you know, fantastic at their job had used old theodolites or clonometers, which read angles and, and Gunter's tapes or chains, Peter's we discuss a bit later on. Um, and uh, ob sun observations, if you like, or astro observations for latitude, longitude, and whatever else. And then we've progressed then to um, electronic theodolites, um, which used to send, um, you know, uh, 
information through to prisms and receivers, which you know were, were pretty standard, if you like, from my time when I started in the early 70s. And then that, inf that information or that instrumentation, if you like, has progressed at a frightening rate. And even more, every, every conference I go to provided by the new equipment providers is the information gathering technology is frightening. So um, we've now progressed, as I said, laser scanners are used. They used to be too expensive for Joe Average to buy. Um, and the software was that massive that it would take two weeks to you know, download a file and create a plan. So those laser scanners that you can buy now can, as I said, can pick up to 2 million points per second and generate a 3D diagram that can be sent straight away through to a client once, once it had been checked and um, you know, categorized. And then uh, thanks to the US Army from a long time ago, the GPS system or the satellite system um, has just got better and better and better. As you know, we use it, you know, to, to um, give directions with our cars, but from a surveying perspective, GPS accuracy is getting better and better when you're using up from 11 to 50 satellites at a time. You can position yourself, you know, um, with an easting and a northing relative to, you know, within 10 millimetres, if you like. And we find when we compare using GPS to old survey plans that were measured electronically or manually, we hardly find any variation. And then the new thing now, of course, is the use of drones, which is, you know, we were thought that they were, you know, a um, bit of a gimmick, but now drones has become such an industry within surveying that we're losing a lot of our young guys who find this sexy part of surveying to go out and take a drone out to a paddock, fly it for half an hour, sit in the car and have a cup of coffee and the drone will land on the bonnet of the car and the whole site's been surveyed in a 3D model that they can send by their iPhone back to the office and um, the old licence surveyors becomes a little bit um, unnecessary. So yeah, I mean, look, it's just getting more and more um, advanced yeah. all the time. Russ, I, I love my little drone, but uh, yep. you know, I, I read that the, the, the navigation charts developed by Captain Cook back in the 1770 when he, when he traveled along the east coast of Australia, were still being used, you know, centuries afterwards. They, they were that accurate. Yeah, they were fantastic, Pete. They, I mean, that was that was use of um, sun observations, um, you know, sextants, um, latitude and longitude, resection, which is really if you you know take measurements from one position and then move to another position and take others and then use trigonometry. Sorry, Jess, but use trigonometry if you like to um, uh, create. Uh, intersection point, which was uh, you know a fixed point on the shoreline, they they were just incredible. And if you look at the old maps, even from um, Van Diemen on the west coast of Australia, um, before Cook's maps were produced, they practically matched up, and um, and that information was just um, incredible. And I think it's more to do with the fact that someone had done it, had taken that time to do it, um, because I would think as from a scale, it's just such a massive undertaking. So, but. Um, yes, we still admire those people greatly for um, using um, rudimentary equipment, if you like, to provide um, maps that we still use today within some form. So, 
great. Well, while we're doing a bit of a deep dive into the history here, um, obviously surveying and people, our, our listeners may not may or may not know this, but surveying is actually one of the very oldest professions um, that date back to 1400 BC. Um, so obviously the ancient Egyptians and the Romans didn't have the tools that we now have today. Um, they were using things like measuring ropes and um, other instruments to gauge their dimensions of plots of land. Um, how did, I guess, how did that evolve into where, um, you know, where you were talking about before with 1770? Did, did come on the first fleet and how did, how did that, how did our cities how were they shaped, I guess, by the work of those early surveyors? Well, I think um, when um, they set up each of the states and set up, the, you know, the, the crown officers and the, um, each of them would have a probably a crown surveyor appointed, and particularly in the new lands as they came out on the on those first fleets, and then those crown surveyors would just be sent out into the bush to to um, survey the land and create. Crown allotments and crown parcels on on uh, you know the, on behalf of the queen, um, and then that information became the the rudimentary base for our cadastral system, and and then eventually you know later on the torrent system, which enabled us to have titles to to land that was originally a crown allotment because the crown had sort of um, mapped it out as best they could, and um, there those crown surveyors are still still a um, used all the time today on, on, on a lot of the crown land that's still available around the state and constantly under review and constantly um, updated, if you like. So, Russ, just going back, I mean, all our towns were set out and we were familiar in Victoria with the, the hodl grid yes. in, in the city of Melbourne and likewise the other regional towns. But what's the oldest title that you've had to resurvey and check and how accurate was it? Well, I'm lucky enough, Pat, I live in a little, an area called Bunningyong, which was where they first, one of the areas where they first discovered gold in the 1850s, 1860s. So a lot of the, there are some parcels in the township of Bunningyong, which were earmarked and set out by the Crown in 1861, if you like. Um, and we've measured those parcels. The old Crown surveyors used to put a little bit of flexibility into their measurements, chuck in a couple of links, if you like, which was um, the, the chain that we talk about, just, uh, which was about 200 mil. So when you measure in rural properties to old fences, 95% of the time you would land on the old fence post that was put where the crown peg or the crown survey was done. Incredible accuracy over you know, uh, undulating terrain and bushland or whatever, they were, they were excellent at their job. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. The surveyors have to be very practical in the field, Russ. I mean, you must have to confront all sorts of awkward situations out there to, 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 and with an overriding aim for accuracy. A hard thing? Uh, it is, Pete, yes. Yeah, um, there, are, there are tolerances that we have to operate to. So when you're dealing with um, survey boundaries, you've got to operate um, 
uh, up to about a 50 mil tolerance is, is sort of the minimum tolerance that um, you can argue um, uh, in law or one in 500 for rural property. So you've got, a, you've got a reasonable tolerance, which is sort of two inches in the old terms, but um, the license surveyor is, has got to do um, enough measurements to satisfy that he can re-establish the title to the reasonable accuracy that, um, that the client expects. And most times, to be, to be fair, that's reasonably within plus or minus 10 millimetres. So, and that's what um, you know, uh, we try and provide. Russ, um, what are the biggest challenges in the surveying profession? Uh, I understand the average age of surveyors is getting on. Is that right? And, and what can be done about it, do you think? Yeah, look, we haven't done ourselves any favours as a profession, Pete. The, the, there's only roughly 400 licensed surveyors in the state of Victoria at the moment. The average age is 63. Um, so, you know, 70% of those might retire within the next five to 10 years. So therefore, there we are we're in a bit of trouble in, as far as having licensed surveyors. There's many other aspects of surveying that, that don't require a license, but from a licensed surveying perspective, particularly in the subdivision profession, um, we have let ourselves down with regards to, um, you know, continually feeding um, young surveyors into the system. Um, the issues that we've got is that it takes so long. It's an, it's an eight-year process, if you're lucky, four years at uni, two to three years to do your, your articles and your surveying projects and then an interview. Um, not, most young surveyors find that process fairly daunting and certainly don't do it in those three years or so. So for an eight year qualification to get to a point, um, it, it, a lot of them find it's easier to go and work in the mines and earn ridiculous money or work on construction sites where you're paid uh, you know, well and truly above the award. So. We have to make um, license surveying a little bit simpler, and I think uh, that's through education. I think sounds like uh, a great opportunity for um, young females as well, as you say, to um, I guess diversify up the industry a little bit, both in terms of gender and age. Yes, yes. We, I mean, there's no reason why they can't. I, I don't know if they just simply haven't seen it as a profession that appeals to them. Um, they certainly wouldn't like our dress sense, as I've said before, but, you know, they, um, they would um, certainly be welcome because, you know, their, their abilities are no different to ours and their communication skills would probably be better in most cases. So I would certainly hope that we do get a lot more young women that would like to be involved in, in the surveying profession and particularly to get licensed because, you know, it's a, it's a great job. I've really enjoyed my career. And Russ, can we talk about the culture of land surveyors? I mean, what do land surveyors talk about when they get together? And also, Jess, did you know that the Land Surveyors magazine is called Position? That I did not. I can't say I've read that magazine. <laughs> the trigonometry put me off. Oh, come on, Jess. Russ, uh, the culture of land surveying, what do land surveyors talk about when they get together? Well, so when, because we... Uh, like anyone, we have a continual professional development process that we have to follow. So there are about four or five conferences a year, which we normally catch up on um, in order to, to continue to have our license. But in order, we would probably talk about the footy first, Pete. That's probably number one. Um, yes. How difficult it is to deal with councils. That's probably our biggest beef and our biggest conversation piece. How much we like planners is probably the next one, I would think. We always, <laughs> we always talk about how much we enjoy working with planners. Um, probably be our staff, trying to hang on to staff, get staff, advertise for staff, and 
And really, we have a process where a lot of surveys, licensed surveys, get audited, and that's always a bit of a bit of a fear factor for us at, at our discussions on when you're next going to get audited, which is normally about every 18 months to two years. So that puts who the fear does those audits? Yeah, Russ? I was about to say who does them. <laughs> Great minds, Pete. Yeah. Who does the audit, Russ? Um, the crowns, the um, uh, lands department um, have a section of. Um, Crown surveyors, if you like, that go out as under that direction of the um, uh, Surveyor General, if you like, under the Surveyor General's office, and they go out and do an audit, pick, pick a job that's been lodged at the title's office that looks like it involves certain aspects of the surveying that you need to be good at, and um, you get an audit and they'll come back. They're extremely pedantic. A lot of the stuff, you know, sometimes is probably a little bit over the top, but it certainly helped the profession upgrade its standards and um, and uh, and weed out, if you like, the the average surveyors that have tried to just bluff their way through, which is pretty rare. So, and what are the potential ramifications of that process? So, if you are found, or if if, if your survey is found to have um, errors in it or issues with it, are you given an opportunity to update, or is there a fine involved, or how does that work? No, Jesse, they would certainly write to you and ask you to update your survey and, and to justify why you've done certain things and then to provide that information. And at the end of it, they have a point system. And if you've, you know, uh, have 10 demerit points, for example, that are um, insignificant, then or two or three which are significant errors in their minds, then you would be then the next two or three surveys you do would be audited again. And if they're in the same position, you get to the point that after three audits that are unsatisfactory, you would go before the board um, and the surveying board would um, really feel it's not, a, I haven't been through it, but I understand from others that have, it's a very daunting process. And um, uh, it's really just puts a fear in God of you that everything you do, you've got to do better and better and better. God, yes, the Lancelain cops. They scare that. That's just scared me what how Russ just I know, I was thinking that. Demerit points and everything. Yes, yeah, not good. L yeah. Lucky we don't have the town planning cops, Jess. Don't speak too soon, Pete. You never know what might be around the corner. <laughs> now now, Jess, your pronunciation's much better than me. Do you want to take Russ through some of these terms that we've just kind of briefly touched on? Yes. So um Ambulatory boundary. So an ambulatory boundary is where a body of water, e.g. sea or river, defines the boundary of land. An ambulatory boundary shifts with the ordinary movement of the sea or river through gradual change. Um, the next one was Australian height datum, so AHD, which is probably a term that a lot of planners um, see on plans every day. The datum used to determine elevations in Australia. The AHD is based on mean sea level being zero elevation. And field notes. Field notes are a permanent record of field procedures and the data collected in those procedures. So are, are these are these common terms that come into your vocabulary every single day, Russell? Uh, yes, Jess. Well, the first ambulatory boundary, it's probably been in the news a fair bit with Lindsay Fox's property in Portsea, which is the, uh, the, uh, main, the, the, the mean um, uh, sea level, if you like, was the defining boundary of his parcel. And that's been redefined over the years and the mean sea level has changed and Lindsay's um, bollards are getting further and further out to sea. So, um, can you just explain that, Russ? How does the sea level boundary change? Um, in, in one in thirty seconds. Good okay, luck. okay, thirty <laughs> seconds. Um, I'm guessing that the measurements taken at, at when those titles were created, Pete, were probably in the 1800s, 
and we're done to you know an average sea level where the where the the mean sea level was delineated on the land, and so you know course measurements, um, you know reference marks, whatever else placed. And then over the last hundred years, um, as tidal positions have changed or the land has changed or whatever else, I'm guessing that that position is then remeasured, sometimes with different accuracy or, and, um, and it's found that there are um, significant changes. We deal with a more river boundaries in my, pr in my practice. Um, in the bush, if you like, we have what we call accretion where a river boundary moves so a person's property is defined by, say, the top of a bank of a creek or a river. Um, once again, that was defined in a Crown survey probably back in the late 1800s. We did one recently up near Stall, where when we remeasured that Crown boundary, it had moved 45 metres. Wow, so is that because of natural change or it is just diversions? Or well, it can only it can only be deemed accretion or a slow, imperceivable movement of the bank. Um, over years, so therefore the new bank becomes the boundary. But if there's any like a, a mitigating flood or some significant change in that boundary, then that's not deemed to be uh, um, accretion, if you like. So it, it's if someone decides that they want to dig out the creek or change the ba the bank or the flood changes the bank, that's not deemed to be the new boundary anymore under those old rules. So accretion is sort of really that, as I said, a, a natural change in a natural boundary. So how does that affect it if, you know, say we've got a, a 10, 20 year drought? Um, well, I don't think that, don't think that the bank would change, Jess. Like the bank is pretty much a, a position where there's a, a reasonable change in the topography from the natural surface and then a break in that natural surface to where the watercourse sits, like the old creek beds. Okay. So yeah. I would think once again that, you know, as that breaks away over 50 to 60 years, mm. the tree roots wear it away, then it will change in shape. But, you know, it's, um, it's uh, it, not it many just, people. The old farmers don't worry about it too much, Pete, no. to be fair. So. It just goes to show, Russ, that, you know, that the land is a constantly evolving and the sea, uh, you know, the natural environment, is a is a evolving um, uh, three dimensional place. Yep. Uh, yeah, it is absolutely. You're changing all the time. Like our our datum system, our height system, our coordinate system, which is you know our um, coordinate system that um, is attached to those AHD benchmarks and that that you that you um, mentioned before is is under the what we call map uh, you know the map grid. Um, MGA position and they are Eastings and Northings um, like latitude and longitude for a better description but they're updated all the time and we've had a, just had a recent change from um, MGA 94 in 1994 to uh, MGA 2020 which is purely because of the rotation of the earth and the change you know in curvature and temperature and everything else that affects a small movement in in you know the earth if you like and and um, anything on it so it's constantly under review all the time and that brings us to Australian height datum yeah presumably that's fixed yeah so that it's very interesting because in knowing that you're a local down that way Pete when uh, in nine in the 1970s um, there was a, a program to create Australian height datum right across the country and it was based on mean sea level um, or tidal measurements um, at various stations right around the country. And the two in Victoria, one was at Williamstown and one was at Point Lonsdale. 
I think another one was Mallacoota, I'm not sure, but in Victoria, right around the, the coastal part of Australia for a few years, they did tidal readings to create a mean sea level. And that was called zero. Um, well, normally we would say that's close to mean sea level at Williamstown Pier, it's probably the best. And then all levels that come up from that, all height as part of the topography is relative to that mean sea level taken in 1971. So for example, the very first benchmark or permanent mark or TBM that you see, number one is at the, at the end of the pier in um, Point Lonsdale, Victoria. And then it's mean sea level zero. Now I, I um, live in on the edge of Ballarat and the mean sea level in Ballarat, for example, is roughly around 460, the height, which explains some of the cool temperatures that we rarely get up there, Pete. And um, so therefore the Australian height data, all those brass plaques that you see on little corners right around the country are all relative to, to each other and are constantly under monitoring and review and updating. So it's a fabulous system that every service authority and most architects and planners, if you like, everything can be relative to that Australian height datum being zero at Williamstown Pier and 355 metres, you know, the Rialto Tower top example. So, yes. Yeah, Russ, that's uh, a fantastic tune. Yep. <laughs> I've just learned so much there, Jess. I don't know about you. 100%. <laughs> I'm going to go and look for that little plaque uh, at Point Lonsdale. Well, and what about field notes, Russ? They're pretty important in the profession. Yeah, so for us as a licensed surveyor, they are they are the, the ultimate documentation. So every title survey or subdivision or application survey, you know, that relates to a boundary or a re-establishment survey now, what we call an RE, we prepare um, a copy of our survey measurements that we've taken in a, in a format on a particular sheet, if you like. And those field notes show the total boundaries and the survey marks placed and the measurements from those survey marks and the description of the, and ages of the fencing or any other topography that's, you know, forms part of that boundary. They're, they are lodged at the, uh, the, um, uh, the LTO or the Land Titles Office as part of those processes and they are scanned and then they are there used by the next surveyor and the next surveyor. So I'm using field notes from surveys that were done in 1863, which were beautifully drawn in most cases, pretty rudimentary. But um, you know, a good surveyor has good field notes because they're, they provide um, the information that allows the next surveyor or the next surveyor in 50 years to find how that site or plan or title boundary was defined and, and what points he placed and what he used to you know, complete that task. I mean, do you, can you pick up the personality of personalities of those people, Russ, or am I being a bit romantic when I say that? I'm sure the titles office has a list of the ones that they look at and think this guy's a bit of a rogue or this guy's a bit of a cowboy or this guy doesn't really care. Um, you can certainly tell the young surveyors that, that provide that information now, it's all digital, Pete. It's not drawn by hand. I still do mine by hand because I like that process, but the ones that are drawn, drawn on um, computer, if you like, are all beautifully neat, but they don't have any personality. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high quality multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details. Now Russ, the other thing we wanted to ask you about and we um, hinted at this earlier is about the, um, the Gunter, is it Gunter's chain or the Gunter's chain? Gunter's chain, Gunter's yeah. Gunter's chain. 
Yep. So um, for those that don't know what that is, it's a distance measuring device composed of 100 metal links fastened together with rings. The length of the chain is 66 feet and it was invented in about 1620 by English astronomer Edmund Gunther. Um, now, rumour has it, Russ, that you actually have a Gunther's chain. I do, Jess. Yeah, they are a rare collector's item these days. So they are um, links which are about 200 millimetres long, if you like, with a little loop on the end. Um, the images are the old surveyors used to have those and just drag them out um, or their assistants would drag them out across the ground and each hundred links, if you like, that they that they laid out would, would lay out, you know, 66 feet or 20.12 metres. So all the crown servos, if you like, particularly um, roadways are either a one chain road, which means it's 100 links or 20.12 metres wide, or a three chain road, which is, you know, um, uh, 60, you know, 60 metres, but 30 metres, which is, um, uh, they're common. They were purely based on the length of those chains or the crown surveys that defined the roadways at that time. And Russ, is that a cricket pitch? Uh, 22 metres, Pete, is a cricket pitch. Oh. All right. Not... So um, these are 20.12. Uh, um, so if you're doing it, you, you, the ball will come under you a little bit quicker probably, I would oh, think. That, that, that's, yeah. that's how I... I must have been going on short pitches all the time. They always come yeah. up to me, Russ, very quickly. And, and two other words... Hiatus and my yep. favourite, a vaniculum. Okay, so a hiatus, um, we still come across those, you know, on a regular basis. So you can imagine when they were doing the crown surveys, when one guy would start at one end of a, of a town and a guy started at the other end of the town and they would lay in their parcels that at some point when those parcels are laid in from fixed points at extremes, that sometimes you might end up with an overlap or a hiatus. So and a hiatus in most cases is no man's land. In other words, it wasn't alienated by the crown at that time, was meant to be, but it's been missed as a, in most cases, a little mathematical thing. And um, so a hiatus can be um, taken up by whoever occupies it. So if you find that instead of having 100 feet, you've got 102 feet, that extra two feet is a hiatus without the property next door being affected, then you can take claim that under the Transfer of Land Act. I think it's section 103 which means that no one's affected. It's just a process that you follow through the title's office and they allow you to amend your title to take up that land, which is a bit of a bonus. So it's, and is, it's there, to... is there ever any disputes with that? So like if you've got a hiatus between two properties, can the, the adjoining property on the other side of you also um, dispute that? It comes back to the occupation, Jess. It's simply like a lot of surveying okay. is if, if you occupy it, you own it. So yeah. it's 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 uh, particularly when it's over fifteen years old. So yeah, that high age, if you if you're occupying it, it's yours. So. Is that adverse possession come comes into it a little bit? I know it covers other things as well, but adverse possession, Russ. Um. So there's three parts of three sections of the Transfer of Land Act, Pete, that are very common. So you've got Section 99, which is when you um, can amend your title to accord with the fencing and someone is affected by it. So that's, that's, but you have to change all your boundaries to accord with all your fencing. Um, there's section 60, which is adverse possession. Now that's used, you know, all the time, if you like, for when you're occupying part of someone's land, they're affected by the fact that you're occupying it. You've enclosed it without acknowledging it to them for a minimum of 15 years. Um, or you've lost your title, you've lost your, you know, your parent title, then you need to adverse possession to sort of prove that you've, that you've owned that, you've paid the rates and you've occupied it. And then there's section 103, 
which is uh, you know the, to take up errors and titles or a mistake or an incorrect notation or a hiatus. So those are the three parts of the Transfer Land Act that you know, the solicitors love and um, surveyors hate. And just one final surveying term, my favourite, a vaniculum. Yeah, vaniculum is like a little skinny S shape, Pete. So it was used to show that two parcels are attached to each other across a, a boundary. Sometimes it's either side of a creek or either side of a road or um, it's not used as much anymore. Like you used to love drawing it on our field notes, but now the titles office in their wisdom just say that, you know, if it's Crown Allotment 1 that's separated by a road, it'd be Crown Allotment 1 in part and on the other side would be Crown Allotment 1 in part. So the old vinculum is slowly fading into the background, Pete. And uh, Russ, when, when people find out that you're a surveyor, what is, what's the first question that people ask you or is there a common question that you always get asked? Um, yeah, they wonder if I could come out and check their fences because they're convinced that their neighbours pinched a foot of their land. That's pretty much a common <laughs> request. Um, they're always convinced that someone, the neighbour next door is, wants to change the fence and then he's going to take some of my land. So that they become very um, um, keen to, for you to be involved. So, or, as we've said in the past, if you're standing on the corner of a street, can you take my photo and what channel do you work for? So, or will it be on the news tonight? So, they're mostly the two questions that most land surveyors get asked, I would think. Uh, and Russ, what, what words do you live by? Oh, okay. So, a saying that I work, uh, the boys in the office wouldn't want me to say most of the ones that I say, Pete, because they've got no sense about them. But I always think when you've had a bad day that I always say that the worst day of your life only lasts 24 hours. So I pinch that off Michael Robotham as a great Australian writer in one of his books. But that's on a bad day. So if it's bad, it'll only last 24 hours and then tomorrow will be a better day. And, really like um, that. and a little simple one, because surveyors have to solve problems. If it is to be, it's up to me. So once again, I pinch that from the great Ron Barassi. Okay, um, can you just say that one again, Russ? If it is to be, it is up to me. And that brings me, Jess, did you know that Russ is our first ever guest who has played AFL football? I did not. Russ, it's true. You played uh, a, a, a startling career, I think, with uh, the Melbourne Football Club. I did, 80s. Pete. Startling is, is a great term. Thank you very much for that description. But both my, myself and my younger brother both played at Melbourne in the 80s under Ron Barassi and... Um, he, he had an illustrious career and I just filled in the gaps, Pete, so. I think that's you being harsh on yourself, Russ. Uh, um, now, Russ, how do you refresh and relax? Um, uh, well, we're lucky enough to have, be able to travel down to the coast. Um, my, Julie and my, wa um, my wife and I love walking along the beach. That's pretty much a, a pretty, and have a swim, if you like, where, we, where, uh, where our house is, so that's, a great part of our recreation, walking the dog, which is like most people get a joy out of that, I think. Um, I read a couple of good books now and then, Pete, just well, to take well, the we'll, mind away from things. And we'll, um, we'll, we'll come to that right now, Russ. We, okay. We've got our podcast, Extra Culture Corner. What's mm -hmm. something you've read, watched, experienced, listened to, whatever that you think our listeners might be interested in? Um... I'm just re I'm just actually revisiting the Peter Temple books, Pete, because um, a great Australian writer. He he was Ballarat based, um, 
I used to stay in a fantastic cafe which makes brilliant coffee called L'Espresso in Ballarat, in the main street, and, and Peter Temple used to hold court there. And his books, you know, um, The Truth and um, The Broken Shore and a few others, that the Jack Irish series, um, I've just revisited them and they are just, you know, just great writing and, and very similar to someone like Tim Winton, who I've loved as well, you know, Cloud Street and all of those books. So just reminds me of my childhood, really. That's a, that's a nice local, local segue. And Jess, what have you been watching, listening to, experiencing of late? Well, Pete, you'll be very excited to know that I've started on my next history book <laughs> in light of um, International Women's Day, which was um, earlier this month. I've just started reading The Life and Times of Marianne McCracken, which is um, back from 1770, um, I think she, I think she was 1770 to 1866, I think it was, that she was alive. Anyway, it's sort of based in Belfast and tells the story of a... Um, a female that uh, made a lot of change throughout Belfast during that time. And, um, yeah, it's a very, very interesting one so far. I'm only about a quarter of the way through, so, so far so good. But it's um, a very inspirational read. What about you, Pete? Jess, you're so good. Um, I, I, I bought myself this, uh, and Russ will be interested in this, it's a little Nikon Forrester Pro 2, and it's a handheld... Um, surveying device. Uh, I don't know if you've seen them, Russ, but it tells you the height, and not as accurate as what you do, Russ, of course, but it tells you the height of things. You, you point and click, basically. Uh, have you come across those, Russ? Is that relative to AHD, Pete, or is it just, just takes a measurement from ground to whatever point you've pointed it at? Just whatever point, whatever point. So, so if you've got a tree, and, and sometimes this is, I find this useful because if I want to drop a tree or something like that, I want to know its approximate height. So you point it at the top of it, then you point it at the base, and it'll give you the, uh, the height of it. And, uh, and also I find it useful just to get a horizontal distance as well. It's, it's about within about 0.3 of a metre. Well, most most valuers um, um, that that are measuring sites for you know valuations for banks or mortgages or whatever, Pete, and people that do boma areas, if you like the old um, gross levelable areas and whatever, they are the the golden tool for them to to be able to provide base plans or base measurements or areas or heights as part of that process. So, in well, the surveying industry, we're finding that every single day the architects, as part of their submissions to planning require the height of everything that doesn't move. Yeah. So they, we would use that tool on a regular basis, Pete. And, and the other thing I want to say for Culture Corner, Jess, is um, I've got a case of JOMO, Joy of Missing Out, and that is I've just stopped watching the TV or listening to the, stop watching the news or listening or watching the news for a week and my life is so much better, Russ. Uh, yeah, that's, there are some great, you can get away from the news, Pete, and watch some great stuff on TV. So I've just watched a series called Gamora, which was based on the, the Italian crime gangs, which was just a fabulous series. Um, um, uh, uh, Robert Serviano was a writer and it's a fabulous series. So it's better than the news. Uh, another tip. And Russ, have you got anything final message for our listeners from the, from the world of surveying? Um, I would think that you just treat, you, you treat a surveyor as, um, as a friend. If you like, um, we're there to help. 
we're there to provide the information and help the client get a good outcome. So don't be adversarial. Oh, that's a wonderful message, Jess. Um, Russ, you've been a terrific guest uh, um, on many, many levels. Um, thank you so much for being part of our little podcast. And listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. And, and Jess, what should they do if they like it? If you like the podcast, you can, um, you can like it on Spotify. You can also subscribe through the podcast app um, and also through SoundCloud as well. So, and, and also, importantly, if you want to leave us a review or if you've got any particular feedback or if there's particular um, people that you want to hear from, um, let us know in the reviews and we'd be more than happy to try and accommodate. So th thanks, Russ, and thanks, Jess, for a, a wonderful interview. Yeah, thank you both. Thanks, Great. Russell. Thanks, Jess.